Our scripture reading today is taken from Isaiah chapter 53. If you're using one of the Bibles in the pew in front of you, it's page number 614, 614, page 614, Isaiah 53. We're reading together today verses 6 to 9. Before I read it, I suppose really we should begin by saying previously in Isaiah and then fill in where we've come from so far to this point. Isaiah has been doing a number of things in this book. It's been a long book. We're at chapter 53, which tells you how long it's been if you haven't been with us on the journey. Uh, And in this book, he's been doing several things. On the one hand, he's been doing a demolition job on his own people, uh, his own nation, Judah, and city, Jerusalem, and on northern Israel, southern Israel, northern Israel, the ten tribes to the north, he has been analyzing their religion from the very beginning, from they became a nation under Moses, to that point, to the point in which uh, Isaiah lives. He's not only doing a demolition job on them, of course, he looks beyond them and he looks at the nations around and he selects some of the big names to represent the rest of the world, people like Egypt and Syria, and Assyria, and Babylon, and Persia, and the coastlands. That is, as far as you can imagine from where you are there in the Middle East, as far away from there as as you can possibly ever reach. He brings the whole world, in other words, Jews, Gentiles together. And he argues with some repetition over and over again, so we get the point. He argues that the whole world is guilty before God. Now, that's the first thing he's doing. Second thing he's doing is he's getting us ready for God's solution to the problem. The whole first half of the book really is, in many ways, getting us used to the idea that God has in mind not so much one day making the city of Jerusalem there in the Middle East the center of an earthly kingdom, but that Jerusalem stands for the heavenly city of God, and that Israel represents on earth all the people of God who come from all parts of the world who will finally make their way to Zion, which is his code word for the heavenly Jerusalem. That's number one. Number two, he is introducing us to this figure who is going to appear who will make all this work out. He tells us that he comes from the line of David. So he's narrowing it down. He's going to be a Jew. He's going to be descended from David. He's going to to inherit David's throne. In other words, he's going to be a human being. He will be born of a virgin. That's kind of unusual. But Isaiah tells us that quite early on. It tells us that this coming king has divine honors given to him. He has given divine titles. And so by the time we get to chapter 40 and someone is sent out as a herald to proclaim the arrival of this figure, we are not surprised by the time we get there to hear this figure saying, Behold, here is your God. We're we're all set up for that. The arrival, the coming, the advent, the appearance, the work of God. 
And no sooner do we look in the direction of which the herald points, no sooner is our attention grabbed by that and we look in his direction, then he is described to us in terms that almost appear to contradict what we have been led to expect in the first part of the book. We look and we see a servant. In fact, he is called the servant of the Lord. And that really is where we are by the time we get to chapter 53. The servant has been described in a variety of ways. He's obviously someone who pleases God. He's there representing Israel, the people who are the people of God. He, he is a singular figure, but he represents them. And we discover that he does what they never did. He obeys God where they didn't. He does what pleases God where they never did. And he stands out as a kind of monumental ideal figure. And we are, what we don't expect is what comes next. What comes next is this poem that is known as the Fourth Servant Song. It begins in the first stanza, which you'll find in chapter 52, 13. It begins with God himself speaking, the Lord God himself speaking. Behold, look, my servant. And telling us what the destiny, the ultimate destiny of the servant will be. He will, in fact, sit upon the throne of the Lord God of Israel, the only creator and ruler of all things. He will sit on God's throne. Nobody sits on God's throne unless they're God. So that's his destiny. That's where he's going. He shall be high and lifted up and be exalted. The intermediate destiny is this. He will provide sprinkling. Sprinkling is a word that's used for the ceremonial cleansing, the ceremony that was a token to the people that real cleansing and forgiveness had been provided. He will provide cleansing, in other words. He will bring pardon and healing and blessing to the nations, not just to Israel, but to the nations, all the nations of the world. So that's where he's going, stanza one. Stanza two, however, goes on to say that when it comes down to his own life and origins, they are unspectacular, quite ordinary in fact. Not only that, but as you looked on, you would see someone who was bowed beneath a load of care, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Then we came to stanza three, verses four to six of chapter 53, which are the, the theological core of the song. They explain why it is that this figure who is coming and who's going to provide pardon for the nations, why it is that he is rejected by his own people, why it is that he carries sorrows and grief. Verses 4 to 6 tell us the sorrows were not his sorrows, the grief was not his grief. The guilt was not his guilt. He is not suffering for himself. He is not suffering on the basis of his need to suffer. He is suffering for others. The core, theological core of the song, right at the very heart of the, of the song, tells you that he has come to take the place of his people. He, he bears the sin, the responsibility for the sins of the people. And he endures the punishment due to the people. 
That's what he's come to do. And that's on our mind when we get to stanza four. And it's stanza four we're going to read today. Let me read it to you then. Verse seven to nine. He, that is this one, the place-taking, sin-bearing, punishment-enduring servant. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. In this this little section, this stanza in the original Hebrew, we come to an even more sacred space. At this point, someone else, I think, is speaking, and he is describing the demeanor and the consciousness of the servant. And so we find ourselves introduced into what he is thinking, what is motivating him. And we discover that this punished, suffering man of sorrows, is not the victim of circumstances. He is no leaf driven and blown around by the wind of popular opinion or current events. He is not someone caught up in a web of events that are beyond his control. Rather, what we see here is someone who is in command of his own destiny. What he does, he does of his own volition. He is setting the pace there is a deliberate and certain hand with which the servant himself guides his own steady movement towards the grave, his death. The three elements of the stanza put weight on three different kind of ideas or truths. First of all, the weight is in the direction of the servant's voluntary submission. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Literally, looking at it from the Hebrew, he was treated harshly. Just as Israel was treated harshly by the Egyptian taskmasters when they were slaves in Egypt for those hundreds of years. He was treated harshly, but he kept, this is the idea, he kept humbling himself or submitting himself to affliction. He kept submitting himself, humbling himself to affliction. He was in that position because he put himself in that position. He humbled himself so that he was in a position to be oppressed by others. Now, that's the, that's the sense of the Hebrew, this idea of humbling himself, of his voluntarily 
putting himself in harm's way in order that he might be mistreated in the way in which it's described. And as we read this, as we read what the language is in the original here, the idea of self-humbling, of self-submitting to this oppression and affliction, we hear the words of Jesus himself recorded in John's Gospel. Chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. One of the reasons the Father loves me, he says, is because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is saying there what the text is saying here. The servant gives himself, humbles himself, puts himself in the place where he endures. He is exposed to opposition and oppression and affliction. And in particular... By putting himself in that way, he is offering no physical resistance. He is offering no physical retaliation for what the the oppressors do to him. He is humbling himself. And not only is there no physical resistance, but he offers no verbal resistance. He opened not his mouth. He humbled himself to be oppressed, yet he opened not his mouth mouth. For those of you who are interested in the literary context or the literary form of this poem, this particular stanza begins with the, the use of the servant's mouth there in verse 7 and again in verse 9. And those two references to his mouth keep this stanza glued together, if you, if you will, from a poetic standpoint. But here the, the emphasis is this. That this servant goes into trouble's way, and he does so with great deliberation, with careful thought, and with a submissive mind. Look what he goes on to say, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that it's before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's a remarkable thing that the servant of the Lord should put himself in this position and should not offer any violent resistance or even any verbal resistance to what is being done to him. Now, in saying this, the the writer also contrasts with what he's just written in verse 6. This servant, the servant we come to know as the Christ, the Messiah, this servant is unlike us. Where we, where we appear in this poem is in verse 6. All, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's where we figure. Where we figure is that we are willful. We are willfully resistant of God. We are willfully resistant of the Messiah Jesus. We, we push against him. We push him away from us. And where, where we are willful, verse 6... The servant is willing, verse 7. Where we are stubborn, verse 6. The servant is submissive, verse 7. Where we complain and we go in our own direction, he is compliant, verse 7. The servant stands 
in massive contrast to the rest of us when it comes to doing the will of God. But that's not all that's involved in the use of this word lamb and sheep in verse 7. This deliberation is connected to the idea and role of the lamb and the sheep as those animals that were usually, most usually, offered in sacrifice. Wherever you go in the Bible, sacrifice, the, the, the use of the, the, the words sheep or lambs, uh, their primary use in the Bible is as sacrifices to God. The classic one, of course, is the, the Passover lamb, and there's been lots of little mini-references back to Exodus in this big chunk of Isaiah. And at the time of the Exodus, you'll know that Israel is in bondage, and Moses comes to Pharaoh, and there are these various plagues that happen, and Pharaoh hardens himself over and over again, and he will not let the people go. And Moses, one last time, comes back to him and says, look, God has done all of these things. You've seen the mighty hand of God in judgment because you will not let God's people go. Here is one last thing that's going to happen. In every household in Egypt, Israelite, Egyptian, or any other race, in every household in Egypt, the firstborn son will die. There is only one way to escape the angel of judgment, and that is this. You take a lamb, you sacrifice the lamb, You take the blood of the lamb and you dab it on the lintels and the doorposts of the house. And on the night in which the angel of judgment comes, when he sees the blood, he will pass over you. Now that was the gospel preached to the people in Egypt. Didn't matter whether you were Israelite or Egyptian. You could believe the gospel and you could do what Moses said to do. In fact, we know later on from the story that many Egyptians went with the Israelites when they left Egypt and traveled with them to the promised land. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. And they did in the gospel in terms of the Lamb of God. Now, it's no surprise then when you come to the New Testament that the Passover lamb then becomes the great picture of the work of the Messiah when he, when he arrives. And John the Baptist, who is the one who goes before him, points out Jesus in the crowd and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look at him. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. So the author introduces us here to the idea that the role of the servant described in verses 4 to 6 in place-taking, in sin-bearing, and in punishment-enduring is a sacrifice. But this time it's a sacrifice that is very different from the sacrifice of an animal. An animal doesn't know what's happening to it. An animal doesn't know what's going to happen next. An animal cannot stand in ultimately for a human being. You see, it all comes down to how we look at at sin. Uh, If we think of sin purely in terms of failure, then we might want to show pity to the sinner. Or if we think about sin as a moral defect, it's distressing, 
But it leaves the subject open and arguable that they can't help what they're doing. Therefore, they're not blameworthy. But when it comes to willful sin, when it comes to deliberate, thought-through sin, there is no escape. And there is, in Judaism, no sacrifice for willful sin. This is where the servant steps in. Because the servant stands in willingly for the people. He acts in their place. Only a a consenting will can substitute for rebellious will. The willing for the willful. The submissive for the stubborn. The compliant Volunteer, volunteering servant for the rebellious hearted sinner. This is the picture that's being painted here. Now, our brothers and sisters in the old covenant church, the Old Testament church, knew the benefits of sacrifice. They understood that. They, they enjoyed a measure of peace with God. They knew what it was to feel forgiven of their sin and an assurance of salvation. How do we know that? Well, you read the book of Psalms and you get it there all the time. What they didn't know, however, was that those animal sacrifices could never, ever remove sin and its penalty death decisively and forever. What they did know, however, was that the Lord attached promises to those sacrifices, and so they offered the sacrifices in faith, not in the sacrifice, but in the promise. With this servant, the promise and the sacrifice merge, so that putting faith in the sacrifice is putting faith in the promise. The sacrifice and the promise merge together. We've just heard in verses 4 to 6 the biblical terminology of sin-bearing, place-taking, punishment-enduring. And the servant stands in. Now, here's the issue. Can any human being stand in for another human being? I can't stand in for anybody else. I'm my own children. I'm I'm a sinner. They're sinners. They're bigger sinners than I am, but I can't can't stand in for any of them. It doesn't work that way. So the whole reason for verses 7 to 9 is to say to you this, that this one, this servant, did not deserve to die, but he is willing to die. This servant is not condemned before God, yet he takes the way of condemnation as a sacrificial victim to suffer in the place of his people. He addresses the willfulness that's in our hearts, the willfulness that we find all around us in the world today of people who reject reject the Messiah Jesus. You remember they did that in his own lifetime. We will not have this man to to reign over us. We will not have him to reign over us over us. So here in verse 7, we have this unique insight. The servant goes into this place-taking, sin-bearing, wrath-enduring work with his eyes open and his mind fixed, with his own will resolved. 
he is voluntarily humbling himself to be afflicted. He does not open his mouth in his own defense. He goes like a lamb to the slaughter, and he does not open his mouth. Not one word. That was what unnerved Pilate. You remember when he was before Pilate? Jesus appeared before Pilate and said nothing. It actually scared Pilate. He wasn't used to this. He wanted somebody who would beg for a remittance of the sentence. Pilate was already convinced that Jesus was just, that there was nothing wrong in this man. He couldn't see anything in Jesus that, that merited any kind of punishment whatsoever. His own wife had had a nightmare and had come to him and said, listen, I've been up all night with these terrible nightmares and I, I just have to say to you, darling, don't do anything bad to that just man. That just man. Pilate is unnerved. And so when Jesus is standing there in front of him, Pilate's the one who's feeling uncomfortable. And he says to Jesus, will you not speak to me? Is there nothing you have to say to me? Could you not just try and defend yourself? Say something. Give me anything so that I can let you off. In fact, he goes on and he says, look, don't, don't you realize, don't you realize that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Doesn't that make you want to say something? And Jesus speaks, but he does not speak in his own defense. He simply says to Pilate, you would have no authority at all if it had not been given to you from above, that is from God. The powers that be are ordained of God. The apostle Peter knew Jesus very well. And he says this in one of his letters. He says, when he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 7 is saying, Jesus put himself in harm's way voluntarily. He had nothing to plead, no guilt to plead. And he resisted taking any opportunity to prevent what was going to happen from happening. And he did it so that he could bear, take your place, bear your sin, endure your punishment before God. The servant's submission, voluntary submission. Then secondly, verse 8, we see the servant's unjust treatment. And you see this on the surface just by reading verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That is, taken away to die. That already suggests, doesn't just on the surface, it suggests a judicial process. We might say just on the very most basic level of the language, without burying any deeper, that he was taken from prison and law court and executed. But there is a clue in the, in the, in the words here, in the grammar here, that, that you need to notice. It's that first word, by, by oppression, or from oppression. That preposition in the Hebrew is a causal preposition. So oppression 
caused something. Oppression caused the judgment that led to his being taken away. This is how we would say it, I think, today. We would say his treatment was unjust from start to finish. He was prosecuted, condemned, and executed without due process or process. Process in one country, process in another, and I have no idea where I am right at this moment. But whatever it is, one of those, take your pick. It was unjust. That's what it's saying there in verse 6. It was as a result of, caused by oppression, that the judgment that was passed was passed, that led him and ended with him being taken away to death. An unjust process. Now, interestingly, again, the context of Isaiah. Isaiah, when you stand back from the book and you take, you know, take a, see it from 30,000 feet up, you see that what he's done right throughout this book is demonstrate when he's talking about northern Israel, the ten tribes that are going to disappear, southern Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem, that is going to be deported into exile, Egypt, and Babylon, and Assyria, and Syria, and Persia, and all these other nations are all under the just judgment of God. He has demonstrated. He said, here's the proof. Here's the, here's the result. That's simple. The just judgment of God. Everything he has said about the servant, beginning with chapter 42, is that the servant is righteous. That the servant pleases God. That God delights in the servant. That there is nothing about the servant that God finds in any way embarrassing or wrong or displeasing. The servant is perfect in the eyes of God. God looks at the servant and he loves the servant. God looks at the servant and he predicts this servant is going to be lifted high and exalted. He's going to sit on my throne. He's to be the object of worship. Every bit as much as I, the Lord God of Israel, am the object of worship. The servant has got nothing in his background about which he should be condemned. And yet, in spite of that, he suffers this terrible, unjust treatment. You look at the New Testament description of what happens to Jesus. Here he is in the middle of the night, a group of between 500 and 1,000 armed guards come looking for him and arrest him. He is taken immediately to a court, kangaroo court, organized in the middle of the night. That's against Jewish law. No defense counsel is provided for Jesus. No accusation is, is put a, or charge rather, formal charge is made against him. The testimony that's brought together has brought together the last minute by people who were paid to bear false witness against him. 
the intervention of the high priest was against the law. He was meant to be an objective judge and not lead on a witness. He leads on the witness and tries to get Jesus to condemn himself by his own words. He is assaulted by a guard who is guarding him in the presence of the court. At every level, it is an unjust trial. It is an unjust trial. By oppression and judgment, by injustice, he is brought to judgment. And this idea of an unjust condemnation of an innocent man goes right to the heart of the issue. It is crucial, crucial in the understanding of what's going on in the book of Isaiah. As Isaiah talks about the unrighteousness of people, the absolute holiness of God, and in between those, the work of the servant. Only he is able to stand in for us. Everybody else is compromised except the servant. And even as we look at it, do you notice? Even as we look about the, read verse 8, as we are listening to this description, he's taken away. He is cut off out of the land of the living. Snatched away from life. With a false judgment and with an unjust trial. Snatched away for life. It looks as if everything is going against this. And we hear, we hear in verse 8, another voice speaking. Do you notice? I don't know where the voice starts. Whether he starts in verse 7 by describing what happened to him. But this is the voice of God, the Father here, describing what happens to the servant. And right at this point, he's reminding us. He's reminding us this man is not suffering as a victim of circumstances, he's not suffering because of his own faults. He is stricken for the transgression of my people. That's God the Father's commentary on the suffering and the unjust treatment of this servant. He is not being punished for his own guilt. He is not being punished for his own sin. He is struck down. He goes to the grave. He is cut off on behalf of God's people. Bearing sin and scoffing ruin in my place. Condemned. He stood. Says to consider it as for his generation who considered it, who pondered it, who thought seriously, Why are we doing this? What's going on here? Have we condemned a righteous man? Have we pondered that the servant was done to death? You understood that the servant was done to death because he was carrying the transgression of his people. We look at the cross and we see this. The servant's unjust treatment. And then in verse 9, we have the servant's mysterious 
burial. There is an intriguing problem in verse 9. It, it has beat many of the rabbis to try and resolve the issue. And the problem is there in the beginning, in the first little stanza, or the, the first part of the, stand, of the verse. And it has to do with two expressions. In the Hebrew, there is a plural. Now, in Hebrew poetry, very often in Hebrew poetry, there are two lines that are related, and one line, the second line, explicates the first line. So there's kind of two lines that, that should merge together to give you a full picture. But here in this, in this particular verse, there is a kind of upheaval in the verse. There is a kind of almost like an earthquake in the middle of, of the verse. It just stands out when you're reading it in the Hebrew because it goes from the plural to the singular. From the wicked ones, plural, to a rich one, singular. Or rich man, singular. And what, what, what we have here, this is what we have, this is a very surface thing. This is 700 years before Jesus. Doesn't make sense to the people who are reading it. It might make sense to us after we've looked at it this morning, but it didn't make sense to them. Here we have a focus on persons. Wicked people, plural, and a rich man. Both of which are associated with the death and burial of the servant. Now, why this disjunction at this point? Serious disjunction in the text. It gets our attention. It makes us think. It makes us ask questions. And there is no resolution. We can understand the first part very, very clearly. They, that is those who took him away unjustly, those who cut him off out of the land of the living, they made his grave with the wicked. In other words, they saw him dying as a wicked man. They put him in the category of the wicked, the wicked ones. Comes to mind immediately is the cross, Jesus, between these two thieves, at least two rebels and, and thieves. Perhaps they were extremists. Jesus is hanging there between these two men. He is one of them, bracketed by the wicked ones in his death, in his movement to the grave. We understand that. We understand that those who put him there expected that what would happen to Jesus is what happened to everybody that was crucified. When they were dead, you took them down and you threw them into this great pit, this great mass grave, and you left them there in this great pit to be pecked on by the carrion and their bones to bleach in the sun. That's what they expected to happen. So we understand the first part of this verse very well. That's that is precisely what would have been in the minds of the people. That's what we are led to expect in the unfolding of this passage here. But there is this rupture. And with a rich man. With a wicked and with a rich man in his death. That's like the opposite end of the spectrum. How is that going to work out? This is one of those 
verses in the Bible which is only explicable after it's fulfilled. You know what was going to happen to Jesus' body. There was an order went out there to take it next day with the Sabbath. The Jews said, we want, you know, want that body out of the way. We don't want people walking into Jerusalem and seeing him. It'll remind them of who he was and what he had done and so on. And that might be embarrassing politically for us. So you wouldn't mind removing all the bodies. And after all, it is a Passover Sabbath. Get rid of them. They got took them down and they were going to put them all. All those bodies were going to go into that big mass grave. That's where they were going. But there was one man, he was in the Sanhedrin, he was a powerful and influential and rich man, and he went to Pilate, the governor. And you remember, Pilate knows Jesus is a just man. Pilate has said, I I find nothing, nothing worthy of death in this righteous man. You know, Pilate's wife is having nightmares about Jesus being a righteous man. So when the rich man goes to Pilate, he presses the buttons. And Pilate, who has not been able to preserve Jesus from that terrible death, wants, I think, for his own guilt's sake, to do something to rectify it all, and he lets the rich man do what would never happen, to take the body of Jesus and put it in his own tomb in which no one else had ever been laid. In other words, we only understand verse 9 from the way it worked itself out in the history of the Messiah, Jesus. Suddenly, it all makes sense. It's obvious that he's numbered with the transgressors, with the wicked people on the cross between those thieves, and that's where he's going. As far as the world is concerned, his grave will be among the wicked. But there is this intervention. And he ends up being associated not just with the wicked ones in his death, but with this rich man in his state of deadness. But there's one more perplexity to face. For it concerns the contradiction that he was condemned, assigned to the wicked, And yet the reality is that he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. In verse 7, he opened not his mouth to defend himself or to retaliate or to condemn. In verse 9, he did not open his mouth in deceit either. He was absolutely straight, absolutely honest. The servant was godly, God is saying. This is God's own account of him. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Nothing that he did or said qualified him to die. He was righteous. So what do we take away from this? Well, we take away from this that our Jesus, about whom Isaiah is writing 700 years before he came, is giving a description of the fact that he would be rejected by his people, be despised. He would go to the cross and carry our griefs and sorrows. He would be unjustly treated. And he would do all this voluntarily. He would do it voluntarily. He would humble himself to this. 
Why? So that he might be stricken for the transgressions of the wicked. And as I read this, I am very conscious, as you must be at times, I am all unrighteousness. He is all righteousness. I am all sin. He is sinless. My words are full of deceit from time to time in my life. His words, no deceit. There can arise in my heart violent thoughts, violent feelings to self-justify, to get people out of the way that get in my way, or whatever it might be. There is nothing of that in the servant. He is all righteous. The righteous suffered for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That's good news. It's not good news to be told the stuff you've got to leave here and do to get to go to heaven. But it is good news to know that God in Christ came and humbled himself to this so that you and I could go to heaven on the basis of what he did and not on the basis of what we have to do. That just kind of lifts the load. It lightens the burden. It should rejoice the heart. Jesus did it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left terrible stain. He washes it whiter than snow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our lovely Lord Jesus. In his total moral purity as the true substitute for sinners who went in our place and endured that unjust judgment, who was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for our transgressions. We pray, Lord, that as we've read this today, that our faith might be strengthened as we see the prophets speaking about these very events 700 years before they happened. That our hope might be raised as we see that our hope of glory and of resurrection rests on him who has come before us. And that our joy might be complete in knowing that our relationship with you is not dependent on anything we will ever do, but on all that he has done in our place. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.